The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob Imrani. Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinske. Sue Baloo, how you doing? I'm doing good, but it was... It, well, I thought it was hailing earlier today. Yes. And then somebody told Tom it was corn snow. What is corn snow? <laughs> That's what I said. Did you what Google is corn, it? Tom, Tom told me. I think it's, it's some sort of... Um, it's, it's kind of like a combination of, of, of ice, of, of hail and snow. So it's half snow, half hail. Exactly. And it's called corn snow. Corn snow. I never heard of it before. And I used to live where there was snow and I never heard of it. Is there literally stuff on the ground where you are? Uh, well, I actually saw it hitting the roof of my neighbor while, while I was sitting in my office and, uh, it sure sounded like hail. But we but got the report. We got the report later in the day that it was corn snow. Never heard of it, but I, I tried. The weather's been crazy. Um, you know, I, I'm from back east, and I, I'm used to. I was used to really cold temperature. I'm not. I've been in LA for 30 years. This is cold. This is this is this is New York cold. I was walking the dog yesterday, and I bumped into a neighbor who lives around the corner, and I'm wearing, you know, like a winter jacket. Right. And I looked at her and I said, I, I feel like I'm in New York and I'm still cold. Yeah. With, yeah, with no, a sweater underneath. I've got, uh, I mean, I'm in the studio. I've got this, uh, heater going. Ah, space heater. Space heater going because it's cold out here. All right. So, hey, look, um, let's, let's jump in. Um, all quiet on the Western front is the, uh, German film that is nominated for best picture and Best Foreign Language Film at the Academy Awards. And it is just staggering. It is so good. And Ian Stokel, who co-wrote the screenplay, is going to join us here in a minute. And in the meantime, I thought this is a good opportunity to talk about what we think are the greatest war movies of all time. Yes, and, and I, I and I just want to interrupt that he's actually nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, sorry about that. Of course he is. Yes. Yes. He's an okay. Oscar nominee. Okay. How could I forget that? No, all right. Know. So uh, we're going to do the greatest war movies of all time. We each were given an opportunity to choose five. I'm guessing there might be some overlap, possibly, but I, I'm not sure. Sue, why don't you start? All right. Now, this isn't in any particular order. Right. These Neither are just is mine. Yeah. top five. The Deer Hunter. Oh, the deer hunter. God, that's such a scary movie. I just remember Christopher Walken playing Russian roulette in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. And it also, you know, I come from a family that we, we used to hunt. Uh, we, we did hunt for deer uh, back in central Pennsylvania. So it, it hits home there because that's where those uh, folks are. De Niro's unbelievable. That's the first time I really 
uh, noticed Meryl Streep. I think she mm-hmm. won Best Supporting Actress for them. She did not. It was her first nomination. Oh, okay. So, that, yeah, that's the first time I ever saw her. And that's when she was with John Cazell. And oh. I read just recently, he was diagnosed with cancer. I mean, he was basically dying. You know, they knew that he wasn't, didn't have too long to live. Yes. And Chimino, um, he knew that he was very sick. Yeah. But he didn't let the studio know. Oh. And, and he did the movie when he was very, very sick. And she I, was with him at the time. And it was like, oh, God, I can only yeah, imagine. John Gasol, probably most famous for playing Fredo in The Godfather. But I think he made five movies and all five were nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. I believe oh, dog that's day at, well, I know Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, the Conversation was nominated mm-hmm. for Best Picture. The Deer Hunter. Uh, Godfather. And there's one more in there. But I, but yeah, uh, unbelievable. He's great in The Deer Hunter. That's a great choice. So I'm, I'm going to start. Uh, first of all, I like war movies that were made after 1970. Okay. I think war movies before 1970, in a lot of cases, kind of glorified war. And I think movies that came after 1970 are very anti-war movies. And those mm-hmm. are the movies that I really like. Mm-hmm. And at the top of the list for me is, and it might be on your list too, is Saving Private Ryan. It's not on my list. Oh, interesting. I love the movie. I only had five. Yeah. So- it it would have been my sixth movie. So I, I learned about the the invasion at Normandy in this movie, uh, D-Day. Probably, the, I, for me, I think it's the greatest war movie ever made. Um, those big metal doors open on the landing craft, and you realize that the first wave of those soldiers, actually, they had no chance. Mm-hmm. They are really fodder in this. And they're live, and it's, it's an anti-war movie. I remember walking out of that movie just speechless. I mean, it's, it's gut wrenching and it doesn't glorify combat. It doesn't, it doesn't lie about it. So saving private Ryan, Steven Spielberg, by the way, wrongly did not win best picture. That's the year that Harvey Weinstein stole the Oscar for Shakespeare in love. Spielberg Uh won for best director, but uh, Shakespeare in love, which is now ridiculous to me, just a totally flimsy movie. won uh, best picture that year. All right. You're number two. Okay, I just wanted to say that I went to France like seven years ago, eight years ago. Yep. And we went to Normandy and wow. I went to the both cemeteries um, wow. and saw, you know, the headstones yep. of Ryan, you know, yeah, that's Ryan. chilling. chilling. <laughs> yeah, it was really chilling. Anyway, um, full metal jacket. Also on my list. Yes. Brutal. The great, the great Stanley Kubrick. Uh, it's kind of two parts. There's mm-hmm. that basic training sequence with Arlie mm-hmm. Ermey. Mm-hmm. who had never acted before. He was a legit drill sergeant and Vincent D'Onofrio is the soldier and he winds up uh, dead. It winds up killing himself. Um, and then there's that door to door fighting and Kubrick is just, he's a, he was a genius. He was a genius. Yes. yes. And all, you know, all that stuff with Matthew Modine and the, and the, and the hookers who were yeah. in the town and, you know, I mean, it just had all the flavor of what you would have w- would have experienced if if you were a soldier, it wasn't yes. just the war part of it, you know. So. Yeah. All right. So I got uh, nineteen seventeen. Ah. Uh, right. Which won Best Picture just a couple of years back, twenty nineteen, directed by Sam Mendes. The thing I love about this movie is that it, it they make it look like it's all one shot. 
Mm-hmm. It's just all one shot. And George McKay is the lead actor. He reminds me of the lead actor in All Quiet on the Western Front, whose name is Felix Kemmerer, um, because there's this innocence on his face that just turns into this numbness the further you get along. And and the fact that it's one shot, you kind of watch him in his feelings and in the way he changes and the way that he is changed by the war. You can actually see it happen. So 1917, Sam Mendes, Best Picture 2019, that's on my list. Okay. Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah. Is that on your list? It is not. Oh, interesting. Um, Yeah, Apocalypse Now is, I mean, it's Francis Ford Coppola. It's the work of a genius. Marlon Brando in just a searing performance. And Martin Sheen, I mean, there are lots of stories about mm-hmm. Apocalypse Now and how deep he went into that character. Right. Um, Got a, had a heart, he had a heart attack. Yeah, heart attack. Exactly. No, incredible movie. That's a, that's a great choice. Um, I've got, let's see, The Hurt Locker. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, I, was, it, I was tempted to put that on, but there were other movies. Another Best Picture winner, 2008, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. directed by Catherine Bigelow. And it's the story of those guys diffusing bombs and searching for IEDs. And when that Jeremy Renner character finally goes home, he realizes that he's just changed forever and that home is not a place he can live anymore and goes back to the war and back to doing what he had been doing. So the Hurt Locker is on my list. Okay. Now I have an older one. Um, the Dirty Dozen. Dirty Dozen. Interesting. That's one of my dad's favorite movies. Uh, I mean, it was just so great. The story was so great. How they yeah. recruited these prisoners and trained them to uh, to parachute into um, and kill and assassinate uh, German personnel. Yes. In France. Yeah. Um, and the cast. I mean, Lee Marvin, Charles Bronson, all these like rugged. You know, the rugged guys, Telly Savalas, yeah. John Cassavetes, um, Jim Brown was in it. Jim Brown, right. Yeah, Donald Sutherland. Um, yeah. It was just, I mean, it was Lee Marvin at one of his best. I mean, he was so, so good. That's a great one. So here's my old one. Uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. Mm. Directed by the great David Lean. That also won Best Picture. 1957. Alec Guinness um, is the star. And was unbelievable in that movie. World War II story set in Thailand, uh, British soldiers being held as prisoners of war and the Brits are being forced to build this really important strategic bridge. And when things start to go to hell, that Japanese commander in that movie, Saito, mm-hmm. starts punishing those soldiers and Alec Guinness is stubborn and they throw him in that metal box. And at the end, Guinness, he's able to blow up the bridge uh, which is the the finale of the movie? I just I love that picture. Um, I think I read the book. Did you? I read the book before I saw the movie. Um, that was a great movie. Um, my last one is Coming Home. Coming Home, yeah. John Boyd, yep. Jane Fonda, Bruce Stern. Oh, I'm a- sorry. Is it? Oh, it is John Boyd, right? John Boyd. And Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern and Jane Fonda. Yeah. 
And it was just a great story about basically the aftermath of war. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, just the relationship that she had with, with Bruce Dern, who was her husband, who went away. And then how she developed a relationship with John Voight, who was paralyzed. Well, he, he was an amputee. Was, I think he was an amputee. He was in a wheelchair. I know. I think he was, yeah, a, parap- yeah. he was a paraplegic. Um, and how that relationship developed and, um, and just seeing, you know, and, and seeing these guys like completely emotionally torn apart and a woman in between it, you know, yes. um, it was just, it was just so great. Yeah. Sad. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a great, great film. So there you have it. I think we overlapped on one. We both had Full Metal Jacket, otherwise completely different movies. I mean, there are so many great war movies over the years. And the one we're going to talk about today, All Quiet on the Western Front, is definitely on that list. Our guest today is nominated for the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay for All Quiet on the Western Front. Ian Stokel joins us. Ian, thanks so much for doing this. No problem. Good to be here. So just a, a staggering movie when i when i watched it it stuck with me for days it is so powerful i know you and your co-writers uh you know have already won the bafta it's amazing congratulations thanks very much so you worked on this movie for 16 years if i have my facts right and it's based on of course the the novel and at one point you had the novel from what i read you had it sort of put up on the wall and sort of beats describe that that process so long ago oh boy it is a long time ago um but what we did um when we first uh got the option not before the option you know uh when we first got the option the first thing we did got a couple of copies of the novel tore them up so that all the scenes and the incidents that we wanted uh thought we might want uh we then uh, pinned up on the wall there's probably about 60 of them maybe and then we sat down and we thought well what the hell are we going to do with this now what do we do next and then it was just a question of before we even got to that point um we had to figure out uh, you know it's a two-hour movie this is a two and a half hour movie but normally uh, it's a two-hour movie you've got to cram a novel into uh, so you've got to leave a bunch of stuff out that you probably don't really want to leave out you just have to because it's a cinematic very focused journey um, and so, uh, the first thing we had to do is figure out, you know, it's an anti-war movie. We knew that's so why we like one of the reasons we like yes. it, but, but also, uh, what are the themes that we want from the book, uh, to try and keep uh, a remarks themes, at least a couple of them, and then, um, maybe add something that we want to add. So, uh, the first thing that we did was, uh, betrayal and the futility of war. Those are the two main ones we wanted to include from remark. And then we wanted to include something that obviously wasn't available to him uh, back when he wrote it, and that was a historical context. Uh, that was big for us. Um, so what we did, uh, well, we did a ton of research. I don't know how long, like a year of research, something crazy. I mean, um, and then what we what we did is we added the armistice negotiations at the end, with uh, which is actually a real railway carriage, which is still available. Um, mm to see uh and that would be a counterpoint to what was going on in the trenches but also you know historically we now know that the armistice the unfair um uh you know demands of the armistice unreasonable should we say was actually the start of world war ii 
And so that's why we wanted to add that. And, and we couldn't really add any more than this was originally when we started, we optioned in 2006. It premiered in TIFF in September 2022. Wow. Just over 16 years. First 12 years, um, it, it was pushing a boulder up a hill. Nobody wanted it. Three and a half years ago, uh, Netflix came on board with Edward to direct and Malta to produce. Uh, and that's the reason why I got done. Um, but that was after 12 years. So for 12 years, it was just brutal. No, 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 no. Yeah. yeah. And it's just painful. And we just, the more it went along, the more we thought, you know, you're all wrong. We're going to prove you wrong. Yeah. Uh, we just kept going. And in the end, it just became like this passion to prove everybody wrong, really. You know, the themes of anti-war can never go out of style, should never be pushed into the background. Look at the world today. You've got to include that. You've got to keep going back to those sort of themes. Just uh, keep it real. I mean, just uh, educational, if anything, for an audience that might not be that up on world events. What I love so much about seeing a remake is when I watch the original just to see the same scenes and then how differently they were done. So there was that one scene where Paul, the lead character, kills the Frenchman. And in Mm. the 1930 version, he actually has this remorseful monologue where he's talking to this dead soldier and apologizing and how bad he feels. And he kind of curses, you know, you know, the, the, you know, the German, he, his own, his own army for putting him in this position. Mm-hmm. And then when you see the current version, it's all done with just emotion and physical. And it was, I mean, they both worked, but it was so beautiful to see it without any dialogue at all. Well, of course, I mean, you know, it was, wasn't it the second year of Talkies or something? The third year of Talkies, yes. the dirty film. So they were sort of a cross between the visually asylum films and almost vaudeville, you know, they didn't quite know how to put things together. Obviously the action scenes are still amazing. And then you realize they didn't have CGI, CGI or anything back then. They had literally tons of high explosive. So a lot of those explosions going off so close to the actors, every time I see it, I'm like, oh, my God, how many guys actually got injured by mm. these, these scenes? Because, you know, it's a percussion thing. You, 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 there's no escape in the percussion <laughs> when an explosion goes off right close to it. You know, it's terrifying when you think about it. So try not to think about it. But um, And then, you know, uh, of course, it's a very famous scene in the book, the Duval scene. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it shows to a great extent the evolution of film and the evolution of how to tell a story without telling stories or anything. So you write this amazing script and you you knock on every door and ultimately it winds up in the hands of Edward Berger. Uh, your director. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about the movie being made in German? Yeah, I mean, don't forget, this is after 12 years of us battering on doors that would not open. Uh, so when it finally came around to Edward, uh, and just to have a, everybody seemed to be scared of it. Directors were scared of it. They didn't want, in Hollywood, you, you only get fired by saying, uh, uh, by saying yes. You never get fired for saying no. So everybody was terrified of it. 
Uh, and they came to Edward, and Edward was like, yeah, I want to do this. And then when he actually said to us uh, in German, from the German perspective, uh, Les, my partner then, um, and uh, and I are both producers too. So we have two hats. We always wear screenwriters and, and producers. And your best case scenario as a producer is for your director to come on board and say, I love this. I know exactly how I want to film it. And they own that script. That's that's like nirvana for a producer. And he came on and he just said, this is what I want to do. And, and we were like, oh, thank God, you know, absolutely 100%. You have to make it your own. And and he did that, and we were absolutely on board. And the more we looked at it, you know, the scripts we were doing, like, come back and forth a little bit. And then we started to see a few dailies, and then we started, you know, like, oh, my God, this is just brilliant, you know. And the first time we actually saw it on the big screen was the world premiere at Toronto. Yeah. Uh, we've seen it a little bit on on over online, uh, a different cut sort of thing that Netflix lets come in and see the whole thing, which, you know, was pretty amazing to see that too. So when I'm watching a foreign film and I'm reading the subtitles, you know, you, you get, you know, you get the choice to, to watch it in English. And a lot of times, I mean, mo every time I don't watch it in English because I want to see the authentic. How much gets lost in translation? Um, well, it's funny you should say that though. When I first put it on, it's like one minute past the hour on Netflix when it was first on Netflix <clears throat> and it automatically defaulted to English. Hmm. And I didn't know there was a default to English on Netflix. And I was like, what the <laughs> is going on here? And then I watched it for like two minutes. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't work at all. <laughs> Let's go back to the German. Found out that I could put it back to German and it really works in German. Um, in terms of translation, that was Edward's end. We were English, obviously, Scottish and English. Mm -hmm. uh, we were 100% on board with how he, he translated it. Um, so we knew, you know, when we saw it, we were like absolutely happy with it, absolutely. So normally, yeah, I would think some stuff gets lost in the translation, but when you're giving over complete control to the director, you're, on, you're committed. You know, you're not going back. And we were committed anyway before we saw any of it because of his vision. So, you know, we we're absolutely happy with how it turned out and the translation and, you know, the, the changes that were made, some of the changes. And it's like, great, you know. Yeah. You, you served in the British Army. Uh, yeah. Your grandfather uh, fought in, I think, World War One, right? Yeah. How does that feel for you like how does that inform what the the script that you wrote and you as a producer as well yeah that's that's came up before i mean it's, it's funny um my grandfather granddad reynolds was actually lied about his age in world war one uh joined up at 17 uh went straight to the western front within about three weeks he was gassed with mustard gas spent two years in hospital and then uh, trying to recover and then died in uh 52 i think from gas related ailments mm. uh and then my dad uh we're a military generational family my dad was actually a company sergeant major with 41 commando in world war ii uh, and he was wounded seven different times got the military medal at walker in after d-day got his finger shot off um and and it came up that i was thinking you know what when we first started writing this it was a different sort of 
you know, it was our take on it. It wasn't a German take on it at all. Didn't even think of that. Um, and then I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm British in the British Army. My dad was British in World War II fighting. My granddad was British in World War One. And I thought, how would I, I defaulted to how would my dad think about this film? Hmm. Um, and I know exactly what he would think because he, he told me what he thought about the guy that shot him and, and everything else. And he said, this is this would be my view would be this is not a, a film about politics or nationalism or it's a film about the everyman. Paul is the everyman. And and um, it's, a, it's a story of of ordinary guys, ordinary men being put in horrendous situations um uh doing extraordinary things just trying to survive for the next 10 minutes mm. that's what he and as soon as i figured that out i was 100% okay and war generally is about just ordinary guys you know they're just trying to get out of there without losing an arm you know and and i remember well i, I go back to a, a long story short when my dad got his finger shot off um the next morning he woke up in hospital and the guy in the bed next to him was the guy that shot his fingers off. <laughs> and wow. I said, I was like, dad, you know, cause there's a whole long story leading up to that. I said, dad, what happened? And he goes, what do you mean? What happened? You know, he's just an ordinary guy. If anything, I'd try to kill him before he killed me. Hmm. So another, another day we'd probably be down the pub having a beer, but it's just circumstances where ordinary guys were not, you know, even though he wasn't an ordinary guy, but dad wasn't an ordinary guy at all. But I mean, you know, just ordinary man, just yeah. put in that situation. And that's how I feel a lot about All Quiet, no matter about the history or the nationalism or, you know, everything else. It's just, Paul's just an ordinary guy. He's just me, you know, me when I was in the army dealing with booby traps and stuff like that. Sure. And, okay. You know, you just want to get out of there and you want him to survive. And of course he doesn't. But, well, it, it was a, a, a political situation because when the Nazis took over, they saw, when they first saw the version, um, they, they made them cut scenes. They made the director and the studio, well, Lamley, they, they made him cut scenes because, uh, it didn't glorify the war. You know, there was one scene in particular, um, they noted where one of the, one of the soldiers was in the trenches and he was kind of cowering and he didn't want to go out into battle. And that, that made a German soldier look weak. So they made them cut it. Yeah. Oh, I know they did a lot of cuts. I don't know if you know about Remark's sister. Um, yeah. She was actually hung by the Nazis because they actually couldn't get to Remark because he'd already gone to the UK. And I believe they sent Remark the bill for a burial. Wow. So there's a line in the movie when soldiers are talking about going home. And the line is, we'll be like travelers who belong in another country elsewhere. And you get the sense from the movie that these men know, even after living through this hell, that life is never going to be the same. I think you captured that feeling in your screenplay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean it's true today. It's true since the beginning of time, you know. Uh, and I think um, that feeling of, of uh, uh, being detached from society, you hear about it all the time from Afghanistan and tours of Afghanistan, and it's absolutely true. 
Uh, so it was captured beautifully by Edward a lot of the times throughout the film. Um, and that's where that latrine scene was so beautiful because uh, we couldn't go back like in the book. It was mm -hmm. just too long. There's too much. So that was put in to actually say, you know, describe that, uh, you know, that disconnect in a way. Um, and that was such a beautiful scene before. Mm -hmm. And uh, also that he couldn't read and had to have Paul read it. Yeah. I love the, uh, some of the like kind of like non-story moments, like when the French official asked the chef if the pastries were made that day. And I just kind of laugh because my husband and I have been to France and we know how particular they are about food and style and everything that's French. Um, what, what, why was that in there? It's actually, uh, I actually put that in. That was one of my big things. Oh, what a great scene here. What a great sort of, uh, you know, interlude. And once it had gone in, maybe it was too much and we had to cut down a little bit on the dialogue because it was too comedic, even though you wanted to have some, some counterpoint, to, you know, the brutality that you see that at the front. Um, but it was a little bit too comedic and it, and it was, uh, it, it Somebody said yesterday that it came across, but I didn't know if it was going to come across right or too much where, you know, these, the, 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 the croissant are, 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 are stale. Yeah. And so we're going to give it to the, give it to the Germans. And when I originally wrote it, he said, let's give it to the Germans. And, but in, in the actual final thing, it was just put on the table and just pushed over there a little bit. Yeah. So that they would eat them. And that was, a, and it also shows because I wanted it in there also to show the absolute um, disconnect between the guys in the mud yeah. and the guy concerned about his pastry, right? Yeah, that's why it was in there. I mean, mm -hmm. really, other than okay, we need to put some sort of levity without being over the top here, but mm -hmm. also, you know, they're worried about that. They're in opulence. There's guys just in mud for years on end if they live that long, uh, and they're it's like one of the things we got. I think it was from a letter um, that often or sometimes um, Germans would do night raids into uh, enemy trenches just to get the food that the enemy was, because they were so well fed, especially the British, and they used to go to night raids into their canteens and steal the corned beef, tins of corned beef, because mm. they loved the corned beef, and literally come back with uh, armfuls of food, and that was, you know, they'd risk everything for a can of corned beef, literally. Yeah. You know, it's, when you feel the detail, you see, you get the details of what was really happening. It's sort of... Yeah, different, different world. There's really, you know, I, I think about the the speech that the I think it's the principal gives mm -hmm. uh, to all those kids, essentially. Um, and I think about that sequence in the movie uh, where that whole group of soldiers dies uh, from die from the gas, and there's a line there: Germany will soon be empty. And there's this sense that this nationalism has really betrayed a whole generation. Mm -hmm. um, and it re that really hit home for me. Yeah, absolutely. And towards the end of the war, we found out um, they were sending, I mean, they were sending guys to the front on the German side 
as young as I think 15 and as old as 65. Mm. They everybody was going. They were running at literally. I mean, you know, it, it uh, mirrors Ukraine a bit now because yeah. that's what's happening in Ukraine. They're running out of men, um, and they're trying to find you know cannon fodder from anywhere. Um, and that's what it was like at the end of World War One. All the Americans were coming, and I think a quarter of a million a month or something that were, and they knew what was. They knew the game was up. Yeah. You know? Um. And they were just throwing everybody they could find at the uh, at, uh, at the tr- uh, front line, and you know, fifteen year olds, I think fourteen year olds. Wow. You know the yeah. scope of the movie. There's long single camera scenes, single shot scenes, the bombing, the gas, the, the dying that we see. It's all, it's all captured. How take us to the set. How long did it take to, to make the movie? What was it like every day on the set? I mean, I came out of the movie shell shocked. What was the mood on the set every day? Well, I think everybody knew it was going to be really good. Uh, Once, once everybody started. And I think, is it 52 days, 54 days, I think, shooting? And um, once they got through a couple of days, it was just mud. You can tell that from behind the scenes. If you look on YouTube, it's just mud, mud, mud. Um, and, uh, you know, but I think that whole sense, especially when you start seeing James's cinematography. Oh, yeah. And, and you, you know, <laughs> you'd see it even on a computer or on your phone, even, and you're looking at it and you go, holy, this is just absolutely beautiful in then you think oh that's beautiful in a horrific way yes you know? um but it's counterpointed with the nature which i know was in uh, uh remark had that in his book as well as a counterpoint uh nature and the quietness of nature and the simplicity um so that was in there a lot some of those great nature shots uh so yeah i mean it was i think the mood was the you know, especially once you started to see James's dailies and, you know, some of the shots, okay, this is going to be great, you know, and everybody was like, this is going to be and then we started to see it put together. And we're like, uh, we know this is going to be great. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, the, the soundtrack is is unbelievable. Oh, the score, I mean, yeah. The score, I mean, the score is amazing. And that, those moments where you had that, um, the pounding cues, you know, during certain moments yeah. of the story, it was so powerful. I mean, it just, it put you there even more. Yeah. And I think uh, Volker, the composer on that, I think those three notes that he finally came up with, I think he and Edward called it the Led Zeppelin notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, uh, it was their jaws, basically. Dun, 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 mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, and it was so powerful. And you knew, you know, uh-oh. When that came about, you know, it was just, it's just great. There's like in Jaws, completely tangent. It's like in Jaws when, you know, the, the, the shark wouldn't work. Yes. The whole film. So they had to think of a, a way to, for the audience to know the sharks there without showing the shark because they couldn't get it to work. So they came up with those, uh, those, uh, air, the canisters attached it to the shark. So all they had to do was drag the canisters around and you think there's the shark. It wasn't as a guy underneath in a wetsuit, you know, yes. and scuba gear because they couldn't get the shark to work. But that whole, you know, ooh, what, that, that, that vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just those, just those notes from Volker was just fitted perfectly, I think. To, your, to- your lead actor, 
who, I, you know, I went to, his name is Felix Kammerer. Is that right? Yeah. Brilliant, um, brilliant actor. Amazing. Mm. He had been mostly a theater actor, right? And what, what yes, do you is. feel like made him the right, he's perfect. What made him the right guy? I mean, he, this was his first film, I believe. Um, and he is the nicest guy ever. Um, he really is a great guy. And so he's very theatrical. Um, but he just, he just, um, synced in with Paul straight away. And, and, and then you watch it for, for 20 minutes and you think, okay, the, there's nobody else that could do Paul like Felix, you know, suddenly uh, you're absolutely 100%. That's Paul. Every time you see him, what's Paul going to do next? You know, and he was just a brilliant actor. He is a brilliant actor. I know he's doing some films now, but, you know, uh, and every, <laughs> I got a poster on my wall with the BAFTA underneath it. Yeah. Is his, his face. <laughs> his face. He's got that great, great face and his eyes. I mean, yeah. it's just haunting. Oh, he was, he was wonderful. Yeah. He's great. I mean, and to be honest, you know, he made me and Les and Edward in terms of the writing. He made us look really good, so, <laughs> which is exactly what you want. You want your actor to make your writing look good. So I, I find this fascinating, away from the movie a little bit. You, you've got a unique background. You've been involved in coaching soccer. You wrote a book called Coaching Women's Soccer, Putting the Play Back into Practice. What do you love about soccer? What do you love about coaching? Um. I haven't coached in a long while, though, because I had to make that decision. I got my master's degree at Chico State, Northern California, uh, in 2000. And I had all my credentials, and I'd coached at Stanford, you know, the, the summer camps, and I'd done ODP in Nevada and California. And I was like, here we go. Um, I'm going to – I started to look for coaching college, um, head coaching positions. And then I just thought, you know, my true love is – my true love is storytelling. Yes. And, 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 you know, here's a, here's, there's a, there's a, 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 a fork in the road right here. When I got my master's degree, do you go and coach and do soccer, which I love soccer? Um, or, or do you really want to go and beat your head against the wall and, and go, go to go back to LA and write scripts and do producing and, and do that, even though it's going to be 10 times harder than getting a yeah. coaching job, you know? And it was just, you know what? It's I. I'm never going to get rid of uh, of the desire to tell stories and film. It wasn't always film. People always say, "What was your pivotal moment when you realized you wanted to be a screenwriter?" And everybody goes, "It was May the 18th." <laughs> and I'm like, "I must be something wrong because I never had that." You know, I was a storyteller. Uh, from very young, I do, I'm a songwriter, I do short stories, novels. Uh, eventually, 30 years, I've been writing screenplays. Um, so there's never a point, but I know it, it was it was just something. And, and you know that once you have that inside, you can never get rid of it. You're yeah. never going to get rid of it. And and uh, there's a the thing that you, you, as a writer, when a new character comes on the scene, or as a producer, when you're trying to figure out your, your niche, uh, you ask two questions. One is, what's their greatest, what's their greatest, um, asset and what's their greatest fear? Hmm. And mine haven't changed in decades. And my greatest asset has always been my creative storytelling. Doesn't matter what the medium is. And my greatest fear, which I face every day is that I'm not as good as I think I am. Hmm. 
<laughs> and every time I sit down, it's like the BAFTA. It's where I write now. It's right next to my screen. And it's just to remind me, you got that. So this had better be good because you've now got to live up to that face looking at you. So you won the BAFTA uh, for Best Adapted Screenplay. Congratulations. And now you're going to be on the red carpet at the Academy Awards. You spent so many years with All Quiet on the Western Front. What's that night going to be like for you? Well, it's all, it's been, and I'm sure it will be till about a month after the Oscars, completely surreal, just completely surreal. We both were on the outside for so long, um, you know, we don't write together anymore. Um, and it's really because of process and, you know, we're completely different in how we approach things. Uh, and we're best friends, have been for 18 years, 16. And the reason why we're such good friends is that we don't work together. That, that's basically right. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and so what happened was, um, even though we've been on the fringe of film for so long and doing indies and stuff like that, when when this award season started, the first thing that happened, first award was we won National Board of Review, of Review Best Adapted Screenplay. Yes. And that was the only thing we really won. We got mentioned as best one of the top five films, uh, international. But that was it. We won it. And we're like, what just happened? That was so left field. And then you have to go to New York. And it's a big gala in this massive auditorium. You know, there's like 30 tables and I'm sitting there and you know, you've won before you get there. Thank mm. God. <laughs> so you're sitting there right down the front and I'm looking around and it's, just, it's a proper gala, you know, you know, people in real clothes. And I'm sitting and looking at the table next to me and Spielberg sat there right next to me. And I'm like, that's the real Spielberg. That's not Hollywood <laughs> Boulevard, you know, with fake Spielberg. That's the real guy. And it's surrounded by all these names, Brendan Fraser and Michelle Yeoh and Colin Fowler, I think, was there. And we're like, oh, my God, this is just surreal. And it hasn't stopped. That surrealness hasn't stopped. And it keeps getting more surreal, you know, where you're, and it sounds, you know, but we'd never been there before, you know, and I had never been there. I'm coming from a real, you know, down and dirty background of, you know, graft in terms of coaching and army and all the rest of it. And I'm like, oh, my God. And and when we won the BAFTA, it's funny, funny uh, when we won the, won the BAFTA, and I'm on my way out going to some after party that I had to get in the car for, and uh, Kate Blanchett was there. And I saw eyes with her, uh, and she went, oh. Uh, the film is unbelievable. And she grabbed me and she was talking to me for 10 minutes while everybody was waiting in the car and I couldn't leave because of Kate Blanchett. And I was like, well, that's great. And I finally left and I, I got in the car and I went, you will not believe. <laughs> you, just, you just grabbed me on the way out. You know, and it's just people coming up to you. And a lot of these, what I didn't realize, uh, the awards, because um, people are nominated for lots of different awards, the same people. And there's, there starts to be a sort of camaraderie hmm. about people that are nominated. I know, had no idea. I mean, come on, I just watch it on TV. And so they see you and they see you at the next one. Oh, you won that. That's fantastic. This is so good and blah, 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 blah. And, and it, it adds to the surrealism of the entire thing that, you know, just saw that person in a film last week on TV. And now they're talking to me about something that's sort of a little bit personal. And you think, Oh, okay. They must think I'm <laughs> I'm somebody, but I'm not. But you know, it's just it's just surreal. It's been a wild ride. I mean, 
all quiet for the first 12 years was a wild ride for all the wrong reasons. You know, it was just a hard slog. Um, and then after it came out in at TIFF, it was, you know, although the, I tell you, the, the, um, premiere at TIFF, Pax Theatre gets to the end and we're like, this is, how's it being received? Cause we're in the audience and there was literally two people applauded. Mm. Dead silence. And we're like, we just screwed this up because everybody hates it. And the fact was nobody knew how to respond. Mm -hmm. Would you stand up and give a big evasion? And it's like, what are you applauding for? That was yeah. brutal. Yeah, it was brutal. And then afterwards, people kept coming up and saying that was amazing. I didn't know what to do at the end, whether mm. I should applaud or not. Uh, and then it just snowballed from there. And yeah. it's just fantastic. But it's because of the great people working on it. You know, it, everybody was so good at what they do. And it, see, it gets easier when everybody knows what they're doing. <laughs> I just wanted to mention, I don't know how many people are aware of this, but this is a, this is, could be a historical moment because if it does win Best Picture, fingers crossed, I think it's going to, um, it'll be the first time in Oscar his history that a remake of a Best Picture wins Best Picture. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. No, so no, pressure, no pressure there. No pressure there. No. <laughs> well, listen, re regardless, um, it, All Quiet on the Western Front is an amazing movie. Uh, let everybody know it is streaming on Netflix. I've got a feeling that you may be on stage accepting uh, for, for best adapted screenplay. Um, no matter what, congratulations. It's one of the best, most visceral war movies ever made, an anti-war movie and it is a classic that i believe will stand the test of time so congratulations well, I, I, again as and, I, I quickly say as I, as i've uh i've uh, i've said on a couple of occasions nothing would make us as writers or or the cast and crew or netflix happier than this film becomes less relevant over time yeah and, yeah. and the sad fact is look around yeah it's not it's so still happening the, yeah so the anti-war themes uh, doubly important that they're out there if not this film then other films as well well ian thank you so much for doing this we wish you the best of luck at the academy awards thank you so much great being here there you have it ian stokel and it is i do think they're going to win best adapted screenplay at the oscars I do too. it it's uh oh god this movie you got to watch this movie it's on netflix and um the 16 years it took to make it worth it well, I mean, all the worth it for us. All, all <laughs> the knocking on doors and all yeah. the, I mean, it, it's it's really it's really something to see. Uh, well, Sue, thank you. That was great. It's fun. Um, everybody, uh, all quiet on the Western Front. One of my favorite movies of the year. Fantastic. Um, thanks a lot for listening. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or at SteveMason.com, and please leave us a rating and a review. We will see you next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.